there is really nothing like the appreciation you get when you've lost something. And that's how I've felt about my voice for the past few weeks. And I'm not talking about these sounds coming out of my mouth, but I'm talking about my spirit and my presence and my character and my energy, everything that I bring with me that's not just my body to the room, everything that I bring here to this podcast that is not just the sound of my voice. I got my ass handed to me by a big bout of depression. I've been mostly unmedicated, pushing the needle really far with diet and exercise, meditation and mindfulness and other activities that were really a huge and will continue to be a huge part of me living the best possible life I can. And maybe it's some outside circumstances. Maybe it's that my father passed and that finally kicked in or my mother getting married, which is all kinds of complicated. But either way, I ended up with that horrible meaninglessness, that hopelessness that comes with a serious bout of depression. When you've been robbed of the why of everything that you're doing. And if you find yourself feeling in some similar place where you feel unable to show up and speak for yourself Take it from a seasoned veteran, it's okay to get quiet, and it's okay to listen. And what I've done for the past four weeks, since I didn't feel like I could show up and introduce these guests and introduce these episodes in the way I want them to forever be introduced on the recording, is I went back on my antidepressant that I know from previous trial and error that it does work, it generally does help me get back to a place that is steady and stable. And while I waited for it to kick in, I knew even though I couldn't do the podcasting or anything very emotionally heavy, I knew I could get work done with my hands. And I've built a creative studio, the first dedicated creative space I've ever had, and I've called it Square One Studio. I don't know if you remember this, but when I find myself feeling at Square One, I remind myself that Square One is sacred ground. Now at the time, I don't think I realized how important this episode was or how important this episode would become to me. I knew it was a knockout conversation and I knew people would like it. But what I didn't know when recording this episode is that there would be a break in between the recording and the publishing. And when I came back to sit down and edit this episode, the conversation we had recorded would be exactly what I needed. So let's talk about your voice, and let's talk about the work of today's guest, Seku Andrews. Normally, when you hear about somebody's voice or your voice, what you're being told about is the sound of it, the pace of it, the tempo of it. Either way, it's a description of the noise coming out of your mouth. But your voice is actually the translator of your spirit, of your soul, of your being. It gives expression in the audible world to everything going on inside you and behind every great revolution, behind every major change and innovation, there is a voice to champion it. Your voice can be or could be one of the most powerful forces in our world. A well-trained whisper can cut through the noise of a crowded room and a fearless shout can break a long-awaited silence and either way, your voice matters in this world. Our guest today, Seku Andrews, is a poetic voice. And his art, his craft, the poetic voice performance 
is a cutting edge category of speaking that seamlessly blends inspirational speaking with spoken word poetry. He's won the National Poetry Slam Championship twice. He has presented privately for Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Maya Angelou, Larry King, Bono, Norman Lear, P. Diddy, Hillary Clinton, Quincy Jones, Al Gore, and many, many more. And you will understand why he's been asked to perform in a moment. What I appreciated about Seku is not only his ability to express himself and be a true artist, but also a way to create a way for him to get value back. He's found a way to monetize his art form, which in the spoken word world isn't a no-brainer. And there's not a guidebook for it. And there's no real way set before you to do something. And what he has done is to say, I see a need for me here and then has built a performance and a art form that can serve that audience. You can find him now speaking for Fortune 500 companies, conferences, and I got to see him perform in front of a builder's association, which without saying anything bad about the audience, let's just say it wasn't an obvious connection to what he's doing. And when he went up on the stage, he spoke his truth and his power and in a way that left everyone reminded of their own strength and power and the power of their voices and their abilities to make real change in their world. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the poetic voice, Seku Andrews. Seku, thanks for inviting me up here. Thank you for inviting me to your performance last night. I like to start this way, and this can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like, but who are you? Really? It can be as small as, <laughs> as I'd like, really? You're just going to leave that out there for me? I think you should have, like, echo and the deep voice of God when you say it. Who are you? You, you, you. I would say that I am, not to be cliche, but I, I think part of the reason I'm here is because I do believe that I am human first. I am human in all of my greatness, and I'm human in all of my vulnerabilities and, and areas for improvement. I am on a perpetual quest to create internal joy and to create external joy in the world and to blur the lines between the two and to recognize that, you know, what you do to impact within is often the same thing you do to impact externally. And so... I try to make sure that I am both trying to uh, create a healthy person in myself and a healthy world, and that I am trying to create strength internally and give strength to others, um, that I harness the creative being that I am internally and use that for for my own greatness and for um, for the good of myself and also to harness the power of creativity in the way that I impact the world and in the way that I help others impact to harness their creativity, to use the power of their innovation, their imagination. I'm definitely a creative spirit. I'm definitely a child of inspiration, student of inspiration. I'm also a very intellectual spirit. You know, if we if we're looking at the, the right brain, left brain, ideas of creativity and linearness and all that like I, I'm pretty much down the middle as well so um, I have to nurture and satisfy both sides of myself in that way and then I'm a spiritual spirit too you know like I'm I'm, I'm connected and I believe in the connections between us as people between 
us cellularly, between us as organisms, between us and the planet, between us and whatever that power that exists beyond us is, all of that encompasses who I am and how I care for myself and how I care for other human beings that I share the planet with. I found you through your work, your your career, or a part of your career these days, which is your work that you call Spoken Voice. Poetic Voice. Poetic Voice. <laughs> um, <laughs> excuse me. And it's a mixture between spoken word and inspirational speaking. And it's really beautiful. Thank you. I know it's been a kind of twisty road to get here. And so I was wondering if you could just tell us how you ended up getting to this place where this is your craft. This is your mode of expression. Because when I saw you last night, I saw that there was clearly a lot of different roads you could have taken with the, the skill set that you have. Yes, sir. Uh, there still are. I mean, you know us artists. Like, we're the kid that wants to do karate one week and ballet the next week and gymnastics the next week, you know? When you have that creative energy in you, it doesn't know bounds, it doesn't know focus, it doesn't know direction, it only knows now, being present, what I want. It's immediate gratification, it's energy, it's it's electricity, you know? And um, and that And the challenge that so many artists have is that they don't know how to put the reins on that energy enough to take something to fruition, enough to to complete a project, enough to be able to improve and grow and create it, create a trajectory, right? Create momentum that can lead to a destination and follow through. And that's something that I've that I have been lucky enough to have is enough of a sense of focus. I remember when I, you know, when I first discovered hip hop in middle school, I would be the dude, I, you know, I put together a band with, my, with some of my homies and they'd all be playing with the sound effect keys on the keyboard, you know, and I'd be like, dude, let's rehearse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's, we're not here to play with the helicopter sounds. Like, let's get out a demo and let's go chase that deal, you know? And that's been who I've been in those types of situations ever since. And so I think that when I look at how it is that I was able to lead myself or allow myself to be led to poetic voice. It was that constant process of stopping and assessing. You know, one of the things I talk about in my speeches is keep your eyes on the prize, but your perspective wide. And what that means is you have to have enough of a focus to, to lock in, to laser in on the prize, right? And to follow through, to reach it. But you also want to make sure that you know, you stop and assess that when you reach one peak, that you stop and take a look around and, and take it all in and and ask yourself, was this the destination or was I simply supposed to get here so that I'd have the proper vantage point to see what the next destination is? You know, to me, not doing that is how you end up going through med school or law school your whole life and then coming out and realizing you don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer, you know, and that could have been the path that I was on. I was pre-law in college and, um, my, you know, mom's recognized the gift of gab and she, uh, moms typically don't say you should be a poet <laughs> when they recognize that gift. So she said, you should be an attorney. And so I was pre-law and started to, uh, pursue law, worked in a bunch of law firms here in LA and, you know, realized that law was not for me and decided that I didn't want to be that bitter entertainment lawyer negotiating record deals that I wish I had. So, I uh, decided to go ahead and give entertainment a try and um, use teaching, uh, elementary school teaching as my transition. And once I moved into poetry full time, 
it was this constant process of trying to drive myself toward what excited me most, but also what satisfied my entrepreneurial business, make a living at this mind. Because once I decided to go full-time with poetry, I'm stepping into the wild west. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no existing industry. There's no, I'm leaving. I, I was pursuing hip hop. That's a, that's a multi-billion dollar industry, right? I was pursuing Hollywood. Well, we know that industry. Now all of a sudden I'm, I'm stepping away from that to pursue poetry. And there's no models. There's no industries. There's no union. There's no, you know what I mean? Like there's no playbook. And so the entrepreneur in me started getting more excited about creating the playbook for the industry than just being sort of tossed into the sea of demos and headshots for the other industries. Um, and that's that process hasn't stopped. So it was this constant course correction, checking in, assessing, eyes on the prize, perspective-wide process of, is this what I want to do? Is this what I want to do? Hmm, I tried that. That doesn't really feel like it. I tried that, love that. And one of those pivotal moments in the love that was what you heard me talk about uh, in the presentation last night where I did my, I did a, uh, a film for Nike. Nike was my first uh, business client and longest running client. And I did a film where I narrated a street ball film for them using interstitial poems all about uh, warfare. It was called Battlegrounds. And it was a street ball line <clears throat> that was all sort of symbolized around the battle of, of the court, you know, on the street. And I did all this sort of warfare type poetry narrating the, the film and then went to the to the Nike campus and presented one of the theme poems live. It was a big hit. And that light bulb went off and said, now this is something that feels like it's uncharted terrain. And I could sink my teeth into and it satisfies both my need to, to uh, bring this art form to people that think that they don't like it, to people that don't know anything about it, to, to evangelize and spread the power of this art form and create a real industry for spoken word while also being able to take care of the need to, you know, put some bread in the fridge and, and, and pay the rent. And so that's really sort of what led to the inception of me uh, creating Poetic Voice as a speaking category. I talked to a lot of artists and writers, which parents would definitely argue is not a great career path. Poetry takes it to a whole new level in that the field just isn't, it doesn't have great role models for monetization. You know, there's the a ton of, every Every city has a beautiful little local community with, you know, small venues and donation based things afterwards that I've been to and I love, but you don't, you don't see poets hitting the New York times list all the time. And so what you're doing was in a way trailblazing, trailblazing a path. And I, yet yeah. you don't see them yet. yet. We're well, working on it. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> I've noticed now with with social media and poets getting creative using video, using sound, using modern technology to express the poems that, yeah, I think we are about to see a whole creative revolution, I think, in the, in the poetry realm. Um, I mean, you can look to Instagram where there are people doing this. I'm really, I mean, you mentioned so much in that last statement, we could have the whole conversation just on various parts of what you just said. But there's one part I wanted to hone in from, which is that you had a career path to do, to practice law, where you probably arguably could have done a really good job. And you were also teaching fifth grade, right? I think I remembered that from a previous mm -hmm. interview. How did you navigate that stepping off point, that leap of faith? Because that is, that's a challenge every artist has to face, right? Is like, how do I even, even doing it part-time means giving up real time 
we all don't have enough time. And so even if you're going to do it after work, it's a major decision. How do you navigate that leaping off point in that those early stages of really trying to follow this voice inside you? I mean, you hear a lot about passion and people saying, you know, follow your passion, identify your passion, live a passionate life. And yeah, it's, you know, in a lot of ways overused, underexplained, but there's still a lot of truth to it. And it was definitely a, a, a guiding compass for me in those early years of trying to, trying to figure it out. And, you know, one of the things that I didn't end with in my last answer, which still applies to this question, is that, you, you know, you're talking in the present tense. And I want to make sure you hear that these are things I'm still dealing with. You know what I mean? <laughs> so when you say, how did you? And I'm answering, well, here's how I did it then. But also, here's how I'm dealing with it now. Because when you are a, a, a grow or die type person, you know, when you are a lifelong learner, when you're constantly raising the bar and, and raising the stakes and pushing yourself into new, you know, wild wests, right? Into new uncharted terrains, then you just, that, that process is, is cyclical. And you're constantly going through that renewal process again. If you're, if you're, if you're constantly sort of sprouting your wings to become a new type of butterfly, you're constantly cocooning yourself. So that um, I, I'm speaking about it in ways where here's how I conquered it back in 2000 or whatever, but know very clearly that in some of these things, I'm now at that point where I'm grappling with it now. I'm at that point where I'm having to sit back and say, how, how am I going to navigate this path? How am I going to allow myself to be led by my passion? How do I discern all of the different routes that I can take and pick the one that's going to bring the greatest fulfillment for me or, or lead to the best, the greatest impact, you know? So, but when I think about the beginning, I, I was, I fell in love with uh, hip hop and with acting in middle school. I had left the Bay Area, shout out to Berkeley and Hayward. I had gone to Washington, D.C. with my mom, who was teaching at Howard University. And I discovered the stage. <laughs> and I, it, was a, it was my gateway drug, you know. Like, I was hooked. I loved it. I, found, I, I realized I belonged on it. And so I did what everyone else does. I went with the existing industries, you know. You just, this is, this is what you do. These are the labels. These are the, the genres. Okay, let me see where I fit in. And so I pursued both music and acting through middle school, through high school. I uh, went to a school of the arts in D.C. for the first year for theater, went to uh, went to college out here in L.A. and then ended up doing a bunch of production classes and producing songs and shopping for deals and writing and directing plays and, and so forth. And then when I, when I graduated, I started to have more opportunities in the record recording industry than I did in Hollywood I started getting more bites from my demos. And so I started pursuing that a lot more heavily. And that led me to open mics where I could just get up there, build a fan base for my, uh, for my music. Again, you have to remember, like, unlike the kid that wants to do gymnastics one week and karate the next, I also had, I also was 50% entrepreneur, entrepreneur, you know? So the entrepreneur in me is, is like the kid saying, let's stop playing with the helicopter sounds. Like, what are we going to do with this? So I was governed by both of those voices. Like, this is amazing. This sounds hot. I think the world's going to love this. Like many artists, you know, that creative spirit. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Slow your roll. What are we going to do with this? How are we going to get it to the world? How are you going to you know, differentiate yourself in the market, et cetera, et cetera. Like the manager or the, 
record label would be, you know? And I had both of those voices in my head. And so um, I started going to open mics and I decided that I was gonna create my own record label because I was getting record companies that were like, man, I, I, I love what you do. Uh, I, um, I, I listen to the lyrics. I listen to, uh, to your demo, like on my way to work every day, but it's not shoot 'em up, bling, hoes, you know, <laughs> it's not the formula for hip hop that's making Flash, money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, it's not all, all the sort of worst of hip hop that's, that's making the most money. So, uh, and that's what we have to sell right now. And so they had a trouble, they had trouble sort of, you know, convincing me, um, convincing their, uh, their bosses to move me up the ladder to get signed. But I saw the reaction that people were having to my words. And so I thought, all right, I'm gonna do it myself, you know? And so I created my own record label, Blind Faith Records, and started releasing, which is a vanity label, started releasing my own products. And, um, and then I started going to open mics to build a fan base for my music, and then something unexpected happened. I kind of fell in love with spoken word, accidentally. Whoops. Right, big whoops, <laughs> huge whoops, right? Because now all of a sudden, like I said, now all of a sudden I'm going, I'm leaving this clear trajectory that I have. It's a very clear path. Rock the shows, kill the demo, get signed, make the millions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, boom, that's it. And now it's like, where is that roadmap for spoken word? You know? And so I fought it for a while, but what was happening was I loved being appreciated just for my words. I loved showing up on the, uh, showing up to the open mic, hitting that stage and not having to worry about the politics of the industry and is the beat dope enough and who do I have on the hook and is the song, is it catchy, you know? And people just going, dude, like when you spit that rhyme, that moved me to my core. And then I started doing um, my, my hip hop more spoken word style, right? And so it was basically taking the same content but giving it a different vehicle where um, I wasn't, I found too many MCs would be restricted to the cadence. You know, it was just like da 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 Well, that's fine if you have the beat, but once you're freed from the beat, why not give your words the, you know, bring out the nuances and the conversational aspects of your words so we can catch it. And I felt like, you know, it's not the cadence that's my, that's my power. It's, it's what I'm writing. So let me release that form and, uh, and allow myself to, to serve this, you know, serve my audience in this, in this new way based on what I knew the value was. And I tell you that story because that mentality was also critical in the creation of poetic voice as a category. In the, and, and it was also critical in how it is that I approached my art and my entrepreneurism like across the board. Because then I was sitting back and saying, suddenly my, my words were hitting the people and they're going, oh my God, this is amazing, I love it. And I became a big hit on the scene. And then I was lucky and blessed enough to uh, win the National Poetry Slam Championship a couple of times. So now my name preceded me, made it easier for me to get gigs. So when I quit my job as a, as a teacher and I stepped out on you know, blind faith, prophetic name for my record label, um, to, to become a full-time poet, I felt like I had, I had paid my dues. I had set myself up as much as possible. I had, you know, put down all of the, <laughs> the, the safety nets that I possibly could. And the last thing to do was to leap. Hmm. And that to me is where people get stuck. Yeah. You know, it's like you, we, we sit back and we say, okay, we're going to do this. And we got our 401k and I got the, the retirement plan and I got the, you know, the kids college fund and I've been saved up and I've done this and I've cleared the space and I've worked on this and I've built the market. We've done all of that. I got the customers. I've got the interest. I've done the press. And the only thing to do now is to take one foot 
off the cliff and the next foot off the cliff. And people don't do it. No, people get stuck there. Yeah. I actually, now when people ask me about how to get started, I tell them like skip the research phase, just do. Because the fact that you set all that up and did all the research and still went is so rare. Very. I, I see a lot of people research until they know that they can't do it. That's right. That's right. They research, the, the, they research themselves out of the dream, <laughs> yeah. you know? And you just need to start. Absolutely. And, it, and you know, I tell people all the time, uh, and I have, a, I have a talk that I, that I do where I talk about um, what's making it, you know? And I remember one of my girlfriends asking me, um, well, what's, what is making it? You keep talking about like, we're gonna, you know, you want to make it, you want to make it, right? <laughs> and she was like, what is making it? So that I, as the girlfriend, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was a real talk question. I appreciate it. I was like, I can't be mad. <laughs> but she was like, cause she could get this sense of, I feel like you could just chase this forever. Yeah. <laughs> and am I supposed to be your ride or die chick that's just alongside with, alongside you at 80 years old, still trying to get signed as a rapper, you know? And so I was like, okay, that's fair. Um, and I and I grappled with it for a while, but what ultimately began to surface was was demand and happiness, right? Um, and and I I crystallized it with the ability to say no, because when when you are in this entrepreneurial place, this startup place, this uh, this artistic place, there's this sense of I have to say yes to everything, yeah. right? And when you think about why entrepreneurs and artists and so forth become so unhealthy is because we're sacrificing everything, every other thing that's important to us for the yes. And we're saying yes to everything. And we feel like that one no could be that, you know, that, that person that didn't sign Madonna. Like I always trip out about those, those stories, like who Russell Simmons had an opportunity to sign Madonna and didn't. How does he feel? You know what I mean? Like who's the person that passed on Lady Gaga? You know what I mean? And that's how we feel with the decisions that we're making for ourselves. I can't, this could be my Lady Gaga. This could be my, my breakthrough moment, right? And so we say yes, and we say yes, and we say yes, and we say yes to our own detriment. We break ourselves down. We give ourselves anxiety and stress and overwhelm and heart disease and all of it, killing ourselves because we don't want to say no. And so I found myself going to me that real sense of success is to be able to say no confidently, to know that my world is not going to come crumbling down, to know that I, you know what I mean, to know that it won't define me, that even if I do miss my Lady Gaga, there's a... There's a whatever, Justin Timberlake <laughs> right around the corner from me, right? And so um, the challenge, though, is it's, the th it's a three-step process. There's, there's uh, reaching the point that you can say no, and, it, and the numbers are there, right? And you just know, like, this is not going to, to, to uh, completely disintegrate all of my progress if I say no. Then the second one is, is recognizing that you have reached the point that you can say no. Because you could be at the point of saying no long before you've accepted <laughs> that you're at that point, you know? And so, and that's happened to me before, where it's like you just get so much in that routine, it becomes such muscle memory to say yes to everything and to live in that place of fear and scarcity that you don't even recognize that you've made it enough to be able to do that. So being self-aware enough is that second uh, step in that process. And then, of course, the third step is saying no, because you literally can be at the point to say no, and you can be aware that you can say no, but you can still be wrought with fear about saying no and so used to saying yes that you just don't do it. And then we talked about that, that point of the cliff where you know you've done everything right and you can be successful at this, but you're still standing at the cliff in fear and you don't do it. And so I feel like that is the point at which so many people fail and that's the sort of self-awareness that we need to have. 
And when you do reach that place, it's such a place of joy. I just had a conversation with my director of relationships yesterday on my way down here. And she was like, listen, they, the client wants ownership of your IP, you know, for this, they want to, they want to own this piece. And I was like, no. And it was that, you know, this was big money (laughs) that I was turning down. And I was like, and it felt good when I got off the phone to say, I just turned that down. And I stood my ground because I said, this is my artistry. These are my words. And and we give things up in the, in the very beginning when we're in that fake it till we make it mode. But at a certain point you have to realize, no, this is valuable to me. This is, this is my creation and I'm not going to give it to you for any price or certainly not for that price. Right. And to stand firm on that, it felt amazing. And afterwards they came back and said, okay, okay, okay. They backed off. How about you just license it? We'll pay for you. And I just, and it just felt right. Exactly. And it just felt great to be like, I would have never turned down that kind of money before. And, and to do that, get off the phone and not be wrought with fear, just move on about my day and check Instagram and (laughs) start working on the next piece. That is making it. If my ex-girlfriend's listening. (laughs) thank you for touching on that because you're touching on a a myth of it's like a a popular myth about being a creative or being an entrepreneur is that there are these moments that make you that i think sure there's influential moments but there's no moment like that i mean i uh i interviewed Brene brown and i left that office feeling like i was clutching the holy grail that little sd card with the interview on it and this was going to do it man this was it i was going to get on the map after this interview and what ended up happening is we we did the interview i posted it she shared it and we got like a couple thousand more listeners that's it and i've talked to people who've been on oprah's program and i've talked to people who won the oscar and there's these this feeling that there's like these things that if you fuck it up. It's all over. And it's really about consistency and living in the journey. And that's actually something that you talked on last night was, uh, what you, you know, what you're saying again today about that I've made it is some sick lie. That's going to mess you up really bad, but cause you're going to be chasing it. And it's, I'm, I am making it currently is really the way. And I guess I'll, I'll combine this with another question I had for you, which is, so you have these bursts of momentum, right? You win the poetry slam, you're all energized, you're ready to take over the world. And then of course, at some point that kind of momentum fades and you're left having to do the work of dealing with yourself and building yourself back up and making, you know, rebuilding that relationship with yourself in the mirror. And how do you combine enjoying the journey with the reality that there, there is these unfun moments. There are these moments where you are low or when you are broken and when you are, oh man, that, that the best work is behind me kind of vibe. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I am unusually transparent and vulnerable on my stages. You actually saw much less of that last night than normal because um, they had a speaker the year before who was very emotional, very heavy, (laughs) and it was great, but it it stayed there. Like it went there and it stayed there the whole time. You know what I mean? And (laughs) And so they came to me like, hey, listen, just 
keep this peppy, you know? And, you know, I try to make sure I'm always serving myself, serving my audiences, and serving my clients. Uh, to me, those are the sort of three masters to serve when I'm, when I'm doing a presentation. And you have to do different things to serve them in different ways. I do things that, are, that will serve an audience. That's not necessarily what the client wanted. But I know that part of what the client wants or doesn't want is based on what they believe is possible. And I'm not possible according to them. I don't belong on their stage according to this industry. So therefore, anytime that I'm booked for something, I'm already defying convention. I'm already breaking the sense of what's possible because I simply, nobody would expect that I would be there. And as a result, nobody also expects to be crying at 8 a.m. at a tech conference or they're shocked when they're when they're passing the, the speech off to their grandkids instead of their their uh, president or, you know, that kind of a thing. Like, it's already in that sense of uh, that realm of defying conventions. And so... Um, I, uh, so I didn't put as much of my vulnerability and storytelling into the presentation, but I, but I normally do, I, I insist on doing it. Um, and the reason is because it, it is important that you, that an audience sees all elements of the journey. You know, I tell the story often about, uh, when I quit my job, that point that we were just talking about. Um, was an elementary school teacher, decided, okay, I built everything up as much as I could, needed to take the leap, you know, so I uh, didn't sign my new contract for uh, being a teacher. And after after my last day in the classroom, like three days later, I went to uh, do a, C a CD release type show at a venue called Fly Poet in LA. If anybody's ever in LA, check that out. And... Um, I did an amazing set and I stepped out onto the streets and I made my rent in CD sales. And it was just like that. I can do this moment. Like it was so confirming. And then I took off and I did a DC tour and I did an Atlanta tour and uh, each tour I came back with a water cash and then I won the national poetry slam championship. And then I did um, a, a tour that was a filmed tour with a group of, uh, you know, maybe five or six other poets. And it was nonstop and it has been nonstop since that moment. I have had a constant trajectory of an upward, mo, upwardly mobile trajectory, right? There has not been a, a period where, oh, I had these great years and then the business failed and then I had to go. And so it has been a constant upswing. Um, so that's a, a tremendous blessing. I mean, I'm, I, I was the one working in 2008. I always joke about like my, when the, when the, uh, when the recession hit, you know, and, and the economy uh, crumbled, all my big, big wig corporate friends were getting laid off. And then they over here looking at me like, Seiku's working? <laughs> the, <laughs> the poet's working? What the hell? You know? But 2008 ended up being the year that my, my business really took off and hasn't, hasn't, uh, hasn't looked back. And so there's that story. And that story is powerful. And I make sure I tell that story to people that are trying to pursue their dreams, right? And that they hear that, they get energized by that because we, we need that. Um, but it doesn't mean that there were no dips, Right. I was having constant personal dips. Yeah. I was having these constant personal moments of just feeling like failure, feeling like I wasn't uh, or, or feeling unhappy, feeling like, is this what I want to be doing? Feeling like what happens if I'm faced with this challenge? Uh, you know, I remember sitting after, in my early Nike years, sitting with one of my um, my clients and having the conversation about what I don't want to become the, just the corporate guy, you know, and, and I just had this I just had this this uh, vision of 
million dollar Philip Morris gigs just being tossed at me <laughs> every day. <laughs> Killing I mean? babies. Right, right. Yeah. Killing babies. Right. Exactly. Pouring oil over. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was just like that that was sort of what I imagined it was gonna be if I went into this world. And she laughed and she was just like, okay, well, first of all, why don't we cross that bridge when we get to it? Because you still have to prove that this spoken word thing is even gonna work, you know? But I honestly feel like good people beget good people. And and the fact that I've kept myself surrounded by people that have shared values, shared principles that are anchored in similar purpose, uh, in a similar purpose for the world, and that I and that I'm not afraid to exude that and to to show that and to evangelize that to the world, that I attract people that share that sort of kindred spirit. And so it hasn't been as anywhere near as many of those types of decisions, and I've been able to navigate them and, and realize that I'm okay to say no um, when they come up, but. I'm still constantly dealing with those those moments of I'm going to try something new and I'm going to fail. You know, one of the most notable was when I launched my stage mic speaker training program. Right? I had been killing it as a poetic voice and I felt like I wanted to continue to serve my audience even more. And instead of just telling their stories powerfully, how can I get you to tell your stories more powerfully? How can I teach you to be a better influencer, a better public speaker? And I felt like there were a million public speaker trainers out there, you know, you've probably interviewed half of them um, and they have great programs. So why do I want to enter this space? But what was unique to me was I was viewing public speaking through the lens of a performer and all of my training had been in performance and not public speaking. And yet I was a, I was a successful public speaker. And so I wanted to bring that mentality of, of how you approach the stage and you approach your content as a performer. How does that change your, your, uh, your, crafting of your words? How did that change your delivery of, of your of your words? And so um, I call it, you know, rock star secrets for public speakers. And in doing that, I was moving into a whole new ball game, a whole new area, you know, and I had no muscles. I had no infrastructure for it. I was doing business coaching around it. I was trying to learn and I done everything. I, you know, I, I have a very sexy brand, not sexy me physically, but like it's spoken word, it's artistry, you know what I mean? It's nice, creative. So the it has all these sexy elements of my brand and I like to make sure that that aesthetic is there. And so I I did uh, the California Women's Conference and I don't know, it was 10,000 women or something, entrepreneurs. And this was my first time doing a platform stage where I could actually sell my product. And so I was going to kill it. And I had this hot booth in the trade show and I had all these volunteers wearing I am awesome t-shirts and I had people taking pictures and everybody was coming up to my booth like, oh my God, this guy's killing and amazing. I got up on stage and I rocked the speech. I killed it. Everybody cheering, standing up. And afterwards, went back to my booth. The day was over and we sold two. (laughs) 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 And and I was like, what? what? That's not possible. You know what I mean? Like, what the hell? And... And I, you know, I mean, it was so humiliating because I had, I was, you know, given the, as the volunteers were leaving, I was paying them, giving them their stipend for lunch and thank you for your support. And they were, you know, they're trying not to express how bummed they are. You know, they asked, how do we do? How do we do? And I'm like, well, don't worry about it. We'll tally the numbers and let you know, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right. I'm just trying to, trying to, uh, to cover myself and, and, um, went home that night and, um, you know, I, I just, it was that true curl in the bed in the dark moment, you are a complete failure. How did you, how did you do this? Like, and, and it's harder to take that kind of hit when everyone sees you as successful. 
Yeah. You know, when everyone sees you, when they just saw me kill it on stage and they saw the booth and they saw that greatness, then they're looking at you like, how did you mess that up? Like that was yours to lose. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could be where you were. I would have killed, I would have killed those cells. You know, what did you, what did you do wrong? And, um, and so I, I, you know, had that dark moment, but I, one of the things I always say is that, and this kind of connects to what you heard me talk about last night in terms of training yourself, training this mentality and this mindset. When you are in the inspiration business, then you have a very powerful internal cheerleader. And that cheerleader is not very sympathetic to all your little, you know, pity party moments. So that cheerleader told me, okay, things didn't go quite as, as expected. I'm going to give you one day. You got one day. So go curl in the bed, fetal position if you need to, gallon of ice cream if you need to, Netflix and chill and binge watch something and listen to sad Celine Dion songs and do whatever you need to do and, and have your pity party because after tomorrow, you're going to get your ass up and you're going to get back out there and you're going to live the same words that you've been telling everybody else in this world to live. You're going to take your superpowers and turn them internally on your inward on yourself. And you're going to everything that you've written, everything that you've that you've uh, crafted, everything you've said to inspire someone else. It's now time to tap into your own reservoir. Build yourself back up because you know that this is not you. You know that this moment is not you. You know that this failure does not define you. You know this is not who you are. This is simply a growing pain. And you know that you've written it. You've spoken about it. So time to be your own champion. Get up. And that, that to me, being able to train that kind of mentality, and you heard me talk about that, right? Putting yourself, last night I talked about putting yourself in communities of strength that preemptively so that they'll be strong enough when you're not to help build back up your strength. Same thing. It's like training your mentality preemptively to, to be able to handle the trauma that you don't know if it's coming, when it's coming, how it's coming, but when it happens, You've trained yourself to be to build a reservoir that you can tap into and you can crack open that door, dust off the lock, pick it, open that door. And you've got an, an, a whole sort of uh, uh, you know auxiliary supply of strength and inspiration and power in there that you can draw from. That, to me, is one of the things that has kept me going during some of those really, really, really down moments when everyone else is looking at my career going, he's flying high and no one knows this just happened. He just, you know, he was proposing to somebody and, and the, uh, uh, they broke up and he was devastated. He, he's married and he's trying to have a kid and they just had a, had multiple losses of their baby. He's, he's just invested tons of money into this project and it just failed. Like all of those things that I try to stay transparent with on stage as much as possible. Um, but people see the glitz, people see the glamour, People see all of that. And so to me, I feel like they need to know that all of that exists side by side. And I need to know that I need to know and expect that all of it will exist side by side and that one does not uh, uh, eliminate the other. It is a muscle, too. I mean, I found myself very comfortable and it took it took work to even kind of bring this life. But I found myself reverting back to helplessness, that that was like a there was some payoff of me being helpless. And I think part of it was that it's like, oh, well then there's nothing I can do. And you know, when your default is helplessness, um, fuck your feelings. Like I'm all about being in contact with my feelings, but when my default is to feel helpless and feel down, um, 
those aren't feelings from like my spirit. Those are some fucked up. It's an addiction to helplessness. It's the, there's, so there's a difference between what I consider as like hearing your spirit and then considering those negative voices, those negative forces, your spirit. That's, they're not the same thing. You know, discernment is, is one of the most challenging tasks as you become more and more aware. It, you know, when they say ignorance is bliss, right? So if, you, if you're not paying attention to the voices, then you're in a much easier, blissful state. But the more that you become aware of your voices of power, you, the more you automatically become aware of your limiting belief voices. You know, they go hand in hand. So you, the, the, you know, if you're not even, you know, like if you use the sort of classic angel and devil on the, on the right and left shoulder, right? If you're not paying attention to your shoulders, then you're going around, you know, going throughout life and you don't, you know, you're good, <laughs> right? You're in full control, but you're also missing out on a, a, a pot- potential wealth of power, right? And then all of a sudden you start going, wait a minute, there's this voice on my shoulder that's telling me you can do this. You are enough. You are mighty enough. You are strong enough. You, you know, don't let this stop you. Stop letting fear get in your way. You're not helpless, right? And so the soon, as soon as you tune in to the frequency where that voice is speaking, that other voice is on that same frequency. And you have that other voice now saying, Hey, no, you know what? You, you, you're too stupid for that. Come on, dude. You haven't read enough of that. You're not, you're not smart enough. You're not, you're not strong enough for that. You're not going to be able to do that. Come on. Really? That's not, that's not, well, just stick with what you know. You know, don't try to do too much. Look, that's going to be a massive failure. Imagine how embarrassing that's going to be. You're, you know what I mean? And you're just going like, oh my God, like, how do I, <laughs> how do I discern which voice I should be listening to? You know, um, and, and, you know, my wife and I have been going through that um, tremendously. You heard me talk about um, us having fertility challenges. I've been trying to have a baby for the past five years now and have had five losses and have done everything imaginable that we can do um, and have tried to make sure that we are striking that balance between being grounded in what is possible in our in our belief system, in our faith, and being grounded in science and research and lab results and you know uh, medical possibilities, and that if you if you sort of imagine those are the two voices on your shoulder, and one voice is saying, "Hey, listen, this is at your age, this is not going to happen, and this is the results, and this is this is the, the 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 statistical chances of blah blah blah, right." And then the other vo- other shoulder, you have the voice of so many people coming out of the woodworks in your community saying, yeah, I was told the same thing. Meet my daughter. You know, oh, yeah, I was I was way past the age and so and so. And, now, you know, our t- test results were even worse than yours. Um, come over and meet our kids, you know. And so you're going, well, how do I discern enough between those two voices to make choices in real time that are going to have have tremendous impact on my life, on my success rate, on this thing that's so critically important to us that we just don't physically get forever to figure out, you know? Um, and that is something that I have struggled with for a long time. And I don't necessarily even have a, a, a magical answer other than to say, I don't shut them out. I, I, I go as a, a poet friend of mine, Jaha, that uh, has a line that says, it's all about the going through it to the getting to it. You know, or there's another uh, quote that I love. It says, if you're going through hell, keep going. Right. And I love those because because the default, the reflex is to want to go around 
It's to want to avoid. It's to want to just climb over. It's to want to turn around, right? Um, but the ones that truly access their power are the ones that say, I'm going through it. And the reason why it says if you want to go, if you're going through hell, keep going is because the word going is the critical word, going through. If you're going through something, then by by definition, there tends to be an other side. You entered it, there's an exit, you know? And so you're in that corridor. And if you remind yourself that where I am, this corridor, is not the end, right? That there is an exit, then you then you are in that place of not focusing on the destination, appreciating the journey, doing whatever it is that you need to do in the journey to make sure that you come out of the journey stronger. So what is it that I need to be learning, listening to, sharing, being? How do I need to be making myself a whole person? How do I need to be taking care of myself in this process? How do I need to be, uh, what do I need to be projecting out to the world? Like you're conscious of that in a very temporary sense saying, what do I need to be doing until I get through this? And when I come out of this, on the other side, how will I make sure that I come out of it stronger and better and brighter for having gone through it by remembering that I'm going through something. I'm, this is not who I am. This is not what I am. This is not my stopping place. I'm going through it. And the, that to me has been one of the main things that's helped me with that voice of discernment to just say, okay, I'm not going to get it right all the time. Sometimes I'm going to listen to the wrong voice. But that's okay because all of these voices, if I'm listening to the wrong voice, it means that I'm tuned into the same frequency as the right voice. And I just have to hope that I can start to pay attention to what that right voice is that's going to get me through this so that when I come out of it, I don't come out of it in a way that says, damn, I just, I either shut out the voices or I allow myself to listen to all the wrong ones and I'm worse for it. I'm going to continue to look at that in, at that end game and make sure that I am paying attention, that I'm not shutting it out, that I'm paying attention and keeping those frequencies open so that when I come out of it, I've, I've got a stronger sense of discernment on how to listen to those right voices that empower me and not break me down. Yeah, there's physiological differences between facing something and avoiding it. And you can be in the same exact situation, the exact situation, but in one situation, you're avoidant and in one, you're facing it. And the body reacts differently. I mean, I... I remember avoiding a, a really tough conversation, very uncomfortable. I'm delivering bad news to someone. Um, our business relationship is going to end. And I avoided it for months. And when I finally had the conversation, I was filled with an energy that had I known that's what was going to happen, I would have done it way sooner. But it was just the fact that I was honoring this thing that I was avoiding and I was facing it. And I think that we really are, we're capable. We're a lot more capable than we realize. And I remember a, a younger version of myself who that was the word I would describe myself was capable. I mean, nine-year-old me thought I could probably cure cancer and not that I physically could have, but that belief in my ability is something that I'm trying to reconnect to because it's better to do stuff make decisions and make mistakes than to avoid mistakes your whole life. And I can only imagine that, of, yeah, there's this weird grace period where you're allowed to make mistakes and it's like young, early on in your career. And then after that, you're supposed to like have gotten it. But if you're trying new things, trying to build new programs, having the slack in the system, whether it's for your personal life or for your professional life, is the only way that you don't break. Yeah. And I, I mean, when I talk to companies all the time, 
one of my most popular presentations is called DIY innovation. And it's just that mentality of you need to innovate yourself first. And I talk to them about um, making sure that you focus on the ways that you are empowering innovation internally within yourself first and then within your culture so that you're not just out there chasing the technology of innovation because that's you'll never keep up with that. That's constantly changing. It's always going to disrupt you. There's always going to be somebody working on something that could change everything about your business. But instead, you saying, well, how did that person think in order to create that thing that was going to change our business? And how do we get ourselves to think like that? And and I talk to the leaders. A lot of times I'm delivering this to leaders at a company and saying, you need to make sure that you are encouraging that, that sort of culture of failure. You are encouraging people to take chances. You know, it's the example that I, that I use is, is when a little kid is, uh, when a little kid falls, right? And they fall and they scrape the knee and, and, you know, it's not like they broke a neck or anything. They just have a little boo-boo, you know, and they, and they fall and they start tensing up and they, that cry is coming and they're looking going, ah, and they look over at the parent, right? And in that moment, if the parent says, oh my God, are you okay? That was terrible. Come here. And they give a big hug. The kid's going to be like, yeah, it is terrible, right? <laughs> right? But in that moment, if you see the parent go, oh, you're okay. You're a big boy. You got it. No problem. Dust it off, right? Go on. Keep, keep playing. And then they look and they go, is it? No, it's not. It's not bad. It's, oh, yeah, it's not that bad. We're good. And they dust it off. They start laughing. They get back out there and play, right? And we have to be able to do that with our teams. We have to be able to do that with our companies. You as leaders have to be able to make sure that you are encouraging, that you are modeling that yourself and encouraging that for your teams. But in, in order to do that, you have to give yourself the same kind of permission. You have to let yourself be able to walk that talk and give yourself permission to be a failure and give yourself permission to be transparent and give yourself permission to laugh through the boo-boos, you know, and to get back out there on the playground. That's the hardest part because we're trying to rectify this persona that we have as the expert, as the thought leader, as the leader, as the boss, as the, the person that's running things, as the person that's supposed to know it all. And the more that we can shed that and say, no, I never, I never said I, I, I knew it all. You know what I mean? Like I was good at this thing. I'm able to deliver on this way. I'm able to do my job. I'm able to serve in this way. And the rest of it, I'm trying to figure out like you. Um, and, and the more that we can begin to shift that dynamic so that we're showing strength, but strength that's not um, at, to the detriment of our vulnerability, you know, that we're not showing, that we're not worried about, almost like worried about showing vulnerability to the detriment of our strength even, you know. If we're allowing both of those to live into the live in the same space, it's empowering for us and it's empowering for the people that are watching us. And that could be listeners, that could be, you know, employees, that could be family members, that could be lovers, like whoever it is, like that to me is the new strength. That strength that says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to crush it. I mean, I went out on stage yesterday and I was not in my highest place of confidence, you know, just coming from, from this event. And part of it was just because of everything that's going on. It's been, you know, beat down as a, as a, as a month. And then part of it was just the nature of the, the, the audience. And, you know, you hear audiences are very conservative and so forth. And you go, all right, well, are they going to rock with me? Cause I'm going to be me. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to be me. You know what I mean? So they're going to have to rock with Seku. I'm not going to turn into, I'm not, I'm not putting on my red hat. You know what I mean? And so it, it was daunting. Um, and I still had to give myself those internal cheerleader conversations to say, listen, 
get out there and do what you do. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you exactly what I said to myself. I said, get out there and do what you do. And I said, you know, my prayer was, let me serve the person that needed to hear me. Yeah. You know, because that it, every, everything you do is not supposed to be for the masses. And I, to me, I'm in poetry, so very few things I feel like are for the masses. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. it was like, you know, God, you put me here to help somebody. You put me here to serve somebody. And I don't know if that's one person. I hope it's not one person because there's 3,000 people, other people out there that might be sitting there with crickets, you know what I mean, and not feeling what I'm saying. But even if that's the case, if I transform that one person's life and I allow them to be a better person and to help make this world a better place, I'll take that. So just let me make sure that I don't allow my limiting beliefs to make me get out there and half-ass it and not give it my all and you know and allow that that weakness to 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 uh to seep in let me go out there and give let me go out there and kill it let me give it my all 100% 110% murder that stage as if everybody is screaming and cheering knowing that it might just be for her or for him and if it is that's okay because that's what it means to be purpose driven that's what it means to be driven by your values and your principles and if that happens it's a lot easier for me to Walk away going, gosh, that felt terrible. That sucked. Lick my wounds, have that pity party and get back up. Then if I have set my goal to be everything has got to go perfectly. And if it doesn't, I'm a failure. Well, yeah, then I'm going to need a much bigger party, pity party because I set myself up for that failure. One of the really beautiful moments of last night's performance was you talking about being in front of these heads of industry, these incredibly financially successful CEOs and you having a moment of confronting your own doubts of yourself where you're saying these people have achieved everything I could hope to achieve. What can I possibly give to them? And you delivering their performance and them finding value in it that you didn't realize that you had. And so there was just a built in almost reward to just doing it, even though you didn't know, you couldn't see how it could be useful. And as you explained that, you know, those CEOs ended up really lending a hand back their connections and their they ended up becoming a big part of your success is that they were so touched by this talk and they want it to be yeah you know what i mean like it's the difference between somebody between you going and asking for somebody for a favor and saying can you do and somebody coming and saying i feel compelled to do this because you've already poured into me because you've already bettered my life and that was a value that i was just not aware in that moment that i had I was aware that I had it because I've done it plenty of times for other folks. But, you know, not every audience is the same. Like there's some audiences that are going to be a lot more daunting than others. There's some people always ask me to all the people ask me all the time. Well, what's your uh, you know, what was that? Do you ever get nervous? What was that 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 nervous audience? You like, oh, my God, this is big stuff, you know, and and I have mine. Um, but that was that was less nerves because it was you know, whatever, some big high stakes celebrity audience uh, and, and more because I, I simply didn't feel adequate. You know, I just didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't feel like I had anything to offer. And so, and like you heard me say last night, so what I did, right? And this is where I go back to that, that auxiliary reservoir of power that we want to make sure we maintain. What I did was I said, okay, I, I committed to this and I committed to this to serve, I committed to this. They 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 asked me to come. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, first of all, just remember that. They asked me to come. So they saw something in me that I may have projected with unknowingly, you know, uh, whatever the reason was, they asked me to be here. 
And so you got to show up. And if you're going to show up, show up in all of your greatness and recognize that sometimes your greatness is not in how loudly you speak, but in how quietly you whisper, you know, and sometimes your greatness is, in, is not in the strength that you exude, but in the weakness that you exude. And so I decided to truly just show up and go, okay, I'm going to deliver the best poetry I can. I feel underprepared. There were technical, technological problems, all of that. But I'm just going to go there emotionally. I'm going to just go there with my stories and I'm going to, I'm going to share with them, you know, what's happening with me. And I'm going to share with them what has happened with me. And I'm just going to give them me, my life and just say, listen, y'all asked me to come and this is who you asked to be here. This is me. And in doing so, it was one of those turning moments where I'd always been really good at telling the organization's story in a way that that electrified them and inspired them, you know, and this is what you all do in the world and the impact and so forth. And, oh, my God, that was so inspiring for me as a finance person or for me as a, you know, whatever, caretaker, a nurse or something. Um, but what happened in this particular one was people began to say, that was cool how you talked about, you know, what we can do as business folks and, and innovation. And that part when you were talking about what, you know, uh, being imaginative and, and using creative thinking, or, you know, when you talked about how it is that we should be humanizing our businesses, all, all that was very cool. I love that. But man, when you told that story about you standing outside of that club on that CD release night, when the crowd dissipated and you made your rent and CD sales and you looked up at the sky and you said, I can do this that sent chill through my body because that's the place that I'm in right now with my business. That's the place that I'm in right now with this idea that I have. That's the place. And I began to say, Oh, right. I told the story about me being a human being to other human beings that are going through a human moment right now. And it doesn't matter how many billions are in their bank account. They're a human being. And so they're used to being talked to on the billion dollar business level. They're not necessarily used to being spoken to on the, on the, uh, the pure raw human level. And they, they're still having to make these human decisions. They still have these human needs. They're still struggling with, is my billion dollar business serving my purpose? Is it making me happy? Are we, are we impacting communities positively or negatively? Has it become all too consuming? Am I being healthy to myself? Am I taking care of my family? Are my, am I creating positive impact in the world? Like they're still grappling with all of these personal human needs. And as I begin to tell more and more of those personal human stories, of, of failure and of triumph and the journey in between, their eyes lit up with the whole new kind of fire and passion and respect that I had not really been encountering much with people at that level. And that was when I just began my, began to give myself permission to do that. That's why I named my, my, speak, my storytelling training Insist on Story instead of some sexy name because I was like, it doesn't matter how many great storytelling techniques that I give you and how many TED Talks you watch on storytelling if you still believe that you are not a storyteller because you have said uh, I, it's, up, it's about the data or stories aren't appropriate in business or nobody wants to hear that crap. If you are your own limiting belief, then the techniques don't matter. You have to insist on story. You have to insist on humanity. You have to insist on personal connection and intimacy and recognize that it has a place in business. And, and when you crack open that door, people are going to be thirsting for it. And when they're thirsting for it, they will hold out their hand to you and say, take me somewhere, lead me somewhere, take me to where you want me to go. And that's where you want 
the people that you're leading. That's where you want the people that you're influencing. That's true engagement and connection. And they do it now from a human place and not from a protective siloed business place. So it's real. Yeah. You've been really generous with your time. So we're at the last few questions. I got one that I think we in part answered throughout the show, but this is from a music teacher and a patron. She says, she said, I can't believe you're interviewing Seiku Andrews. My question, I've been an instrumental music teacher for the last 25 years. I believe I was able to bring some light and joy to kids through music, possibly help to build some self-esteem and expression and uh, through the celebration that music gives us, but I've always felt in my heart and soul that this is not where I was supposed to be. I stayed for the most part because of the security of a paycheck, and I didn't follow and I didn't believe enough in myself to follow my true passion. How do I leave and try to step into my own light as a musician when fear takes over time and time again? How do how do we break through that fear? Hmm. Well, we've talked. We've answered some of that. Yeah. But what's coming up for me is a couple of things. One, fear is always going to be there. Know that, expect that, and do not base your decision to break through, to step out, to leave on finally conquering the fear, final, or should, should say finally eliminating the fear. Because if you do that, you're never going to leave. You know what I mean? Like if you're waiting for this fearless moment, it's never going to happen. Um, so that's one. Two, don't look at it as a decision. Look at it as multiple micro decisions. Don't look at it as this big one, this one big thing that you've got to decide, you know, because that's not, that's not what it is. It's not, I mean, my decision to quit my job as a teacher and to become a full-time poet was not one decision. You know, there was, there were a lot of things I had to line up. I remember, I remember, uh, Four months prior, I took my tax return and I upgraded my recording studio and I began to record my first spoken word album, the double CD. And my girlfriend had come to visit. She was living in D.C. at the time and she'd come to visit. And we drove out to uh, my, my school and I had a meeting with my principal. And uh, she, my girlfriend sat in the car and she gave me the big hug and the pep talk. All right, go in there. And this was going to be the time that I was telling my principal, I'm not going to resign my contract. Cause if you know, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, this woman knows like teaching is the kind of job where you don't really get to say, I'm going to quit in September. No, I'm not quite ready. I'm going to quit in December. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like you got that one time where you signed that contract for a year or not, you know? And every year I couldn't quite see how it is that I was going to make money and be able to monetize this, uh, this art form. And so I kept resigning, kept resigning. When this, when this moment was happening and I pulled up to the school, I was going there to tell my principal that, you know, I was not going to be continuing. And I went into the office and I sat down and she sat down and she looked at me and I had my, you know, had my big speech prepared and everything. And she looked at me and she said, you're leaving me, aren't you? And I was like, ah. Oh that was not how this was supposed to go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it was also gratifying to hear her know that and to hear her say, yeah, like I, I knew that you were meant for a bigger stage. You know, I knew that you're, that you have other things to do on this planet. And, and sometimes just receiving that confirmation from others in the world 
who see something in you that you think you see, but you're not sure, and you're, you're, you're more riddled with fear than they are, so you, you don't have a clear image of yourself and your possibilities, but that person does, you know, receiving that and letting that strengthen you is, is can be uh, transformational. And so, you know, I left there, I upgraded my recording studio, I, you know, took all my tax return money, beefed up my studio, recorded my CD, um, and then four months later, I said, okay, now I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna actually, you know, quit this job. It, the moment that I did that, there were still 50 to 100 other little micro decisions that I was constantly making along that path. One of the biggest ones is one of the ones I ask everyone else who came after me that won the National Poetry Slam Championship. And I had a couple of my friends call me and say, hey, I just won. What do I do? Like, you're making a living at this. And one of the main things that I would ask them uh, or tell them to do is instead of just, you know, I'm not going to tell you where you can get shows and you know, sell what's the best venues to sell your CDs. Lots of other poets can tell you that. What I'm gonna ask, what I'm gonna ask you to do is to sit down and have a very real conversation with yourself about whether or not you want to make your art your product, whether you want to make your art your business. Because when you do, you're gonna have to have an entirely different relationship with your art. And there will be times that you will feel like this is just a job, that it is no different than working at 7-Eleven or a gas station. It is just something that you come to and you're miserable when you have to hit that alarm clock and you can't stand it. And people can make working for yourself and turning your art into your business, they can make it look real sexy. But at the end of the day, you made the conscious decision to say, this is going to be my job now. And therefore I have every, all the dynamics that exist with any other job are there. You need to get up, you need to be here. I don't care that you don't feel well. We, you have to show up, you have to put a smile on when you're at the front desk, even though you feel depressed. All the things that are, that are required for a job are gonna be required for this. Are you ready for that? Because if not, then just keep it a hobby. Just keep it passion. Just go work the job and just let this be the thing, you know, put the band together afterwards, you know? And so uh, the reason why that's, why that's so important is because when you are looking and saying, okay, I, I know that my passion lies in my music. I'm teaching. I'm trying to figure out how it is that I can uh, make this transition into, into this creative space with my music, then you have to start paying a lot of attention to what is it about your music that will get you through? How is it, what is the relationship that you can have with your music that will get you through the ugly days, the dark days, the tough days? You know, don't, uh, what's, the, what's the phrase I'm looking for? If you've got a great relationship with your art right now, then, be, then, then protect that and be respectful of that and be careful with that because you don't want to do something to make, you, make yourself hate music because you went about it the wrong way, right? So start paying very close attention to, it's not just music that I love, but it's doing this specifically or it's that or as long as I can make sure that I'm doing this or as long as I get this, this kind of energy from the people that I'm serving or as long as I can have audience interaction or as long as I can just be in a studio and create by myself or as long as I can tap into the energies when I want to, like whatever it is, start paying very close attention to what is it that you need because that thing that you need is going to be the thing that gets you through all the other areas that you're sacrificing once you step out of that teaching job and you move into monetizing your music. And you're going to have to hold on viscerally to that relationship that you have with it and use it, you know, when I'm struggling and I'm lacking sleep and I'm traveling around and I'm beat up and I'm leaving my wife and I'm, you know, all of that, 
I, I have to remind myself, number one, somebody's life is going to be better because of what I'm doing. So step up. You have a purpose in this planet. You have a mission to serve. Number two, you're going to get out on stage and that is your, that's your home. So just, just get yourself to the stage. Just get yourself to the stage. I know it's hard right now, but get yourself to the stage. That's your fueling station. And you're going to have an energy with that audience. You're going to connect with them. And that will get you through all the, the, the tough moments that, that will come after it, right? So I'm very aware of the types of thing, ways that my art feeds me and the things that I need to do to let go of to, to, keep, it a, to keep it a product and a business. So that's what I would tell you is to, to just make sure that when you're thinking about that big decision, you're, looking, you're breaking it down into these small micro decisions as you can say, okay, I'm going to have to make this decision on Tuesday. I'm going to have to make this decision next week. I'm going to have to make this decision in a month. Each of those decisions are going to be tough and challenging and so forth. What is it that I can do with my art that will sustain me through all of those decisions so that when I step off the cliff and I quit my job, I, I'm not expecting it to just be smooth sailing the whole time, but I'm going to be pulling from and fueling myself from that relationship with my art that, that will get me through all of it. And it will be so joyous that, okay, I'll take those days when I'm working at the gas station because I still, I've moved myself from a place where I have to do this to a place where I get to do this. And I'm going to bask in that. That was such a mind-blowingly beautiful answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Holy cow. You're going to want to have that clip for the highlight reel. I promise you. <laughs> That's good to know. I normally like to end the program this way which is if I was to pull out my phone right now and on the other end was a younger version of yourself or, or a young artist in general who's at the low moment, they're forgetting what's true. And in the terms of talking to your younger self, you could pitch it as the person who is struggling to understand what you are gonna grow into. What are the words you would you would leave to that person in a, in a short message that they could carry with them until they grew into who they're supposed to be. And you could, if you have poetic voice snippet that you've wrote to your younger self, awesome. If you want to just answer the question, how you would speak to yourself, wonderful. But I would love to know what you would say to, to young Seku. I would say, hmm, it's a great question. I would say, use this. Even this is your power. I would say all of this is your power. That thing that you're going through right now, that's your power. Use it. That struggle that you're grappling with, that decision that you're grappling with, that fear that you're grappling with, that's your power. Use it. Everything that is uplifting you and everything that is damaging you is your power. So use it. You are destined for a space in this world where you get to share power. You get to spread power to other people. And the only way that you'll be able to do that is by using everything that's happening to you, embracing everything that's happening to you, and knowing that everything that's happening to you is truly making you more powerful is truly adding to the to the reservoir of what you will be able to speak to in this world of what of the experiences that you have gone through that will shape your words in a way that will allow you to reach one more person 
There's one more person that you would not have been able to reach had you not gone through that thing that you're going through right now. And it's because you're going through that. It's because you've having, that you're having to face that. It's because you are experiencing that drama and that trauma or that damage. It's because you're experiencing that, that triumph and that victory that you will be able to reach someone who needed to hear that exact message, who needed to know that some, someone shared that experience. So embrace it all. I'm sorry that you are going through it. I'm sorry that you're having to, that, that, that you're having to feel that pain and that ugliness, but know that you are truly going through it, which means there is another side that you will come out of it, that you will, that you will come out of. And when you come out of it, you will be more beautiful. You will make life more beautiful. You will spread more beauty to others and it will be a more beautiful world because of how you used it, because of you knowing that it is your power. I would tell my younger self that and then I would let my hear, I would let my younger self hear just a bit of the poem that I probably wrote to them, to him, and didn't know it, the awesome anthem. And I would tell that person, there are those days when I fall to my knees, look at the murky reflection on the surface of water before me, and I see my reflection looking back at me, thinking to itself, I don't know what he thinks he sees, but he must not be looking at me because I am awesome like the science of miracles and the mathematic of purpose, awesome. Like how the mind can always solve the what of who and the when of where, but the soul must solve for why, awesome. Like the thought of God and logic, having faith that we will figure ourselves out, awesome. Like how the moment I truly discovered the great I am, is the same moment I discovered how truly great I am. And I am not perfect, but I'm perfect as I am. I'm not beautiful like I used to be. I'm beautiful like I am, like the scar where a breast once was, like survival where a death once was, like the better where a best once was. Every gray hair, a trophy, every wrinkled fold, a story, every pound of fat, a challenge reminding me there is always something to pursue and always something to celebrate. That's why I never smile for no reason. That's a concept I don't believe in. You ain't never without a reason to show off your teeth a bit. Spread out your cheeks a bit. Let your gums breathe a bit. If you can learn to reach deep for it, you can take yourself a piece of bliss and make yourself a feast of it. That's what I would tell young Segu. Thank you so much for your time.
Thanks so much for listening. That's it for today's episode. For more of our guest, Seku Andrews, please check out his website, his social media, see what events he's doing near you, and if you can go, I promise it's worth it. All of those are in the podcast description, otherwise known as the show notes. And for more of us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at hellohumans.co, which also happens to be our website, www.hellohumans.co. The How To Human Podcast. What you're listening to is a production of Hello Humans humans recorded out of our new studio space square one studio with special thanks to our executive producer natalie real until next time